Hello, and thanks for listening to the Healthcare 360 podcast. I'm Rob Fields. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer at Beth Israel Leahy Health. And I have David Sontag with me today. I'm excited to talk about this topic because it's so meaty. But David, let's start with introducing yourself a bit. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I am a Senior Associate General Counsel and Director of Ethics for Beth Israel Leahy Health. I've been with the system, started at BIDMC back in 2011. And I came to BIDMC after working in health law for a while in private healthcare. I always knew I wanted to do healthcare law. Right. I got a master in bioethics when I got my JD. And so I just kind of found my way into in-house world. And as soon as I started, I knew I wanted to get more involved in really the decisions that most directly impact patient care and mm-hmm. then also into the ethics piece. So I volunteered to join the Ethics Advisory Committee. I'm now the co-chair of the Ethics Advisory Committee at BIDMC. Right. And we have an ethics liaison program. I started doing that. I volunteered to take on the guardianship process mm. in the Office of General Counsel, so more right. direct patient care. Right. And then getting involved at Harvard Medical School, I'm now the co-director of the Capstone Program, which is part of the Master of Bioethics Program at the Center for Bioethics in Harvard Medical School. Wow, you're busy. Very, very busy, yeah, very busy. Before we concentrate more on the ethics part of your role, yeah. it might be helpful for folks that are listening that may not be familiar with what you know a general counsel's office and a healthcare system does. What are the kinds of things that typically you and your colleagues work on in day-to-day? Yeah, it's very broad. Right? I, am, so I would we, imagine. <laughs> so we deal with, you know, we can start on like the HR front, right? So all of our HR functions are handled by our Human Resources Department and our department will support them and that sort of work. We obviously do transactional work and deal work. So when mm-hmm. Exeter came on or the creation of Beth Israel Leahy Health right. um, all came through our respective offices. We, as I said, we deal with patient care matters that may come up. So maybe things like capacity or who the right surrogate decision maker is. Right. We help with issues when there's police involvement. So when police come to our hospitals mm-hmm. and ask for things. And then obviously contract work. So any of the contracts that are coming in privacy supports. We support our compliance department as well. You know, we have a lot of lawyers. We structure our office so that each hospital has a primary point of contact. Mm -hmm. And then we have each lawyer has some area of expertise. So we try and kind of mix it up and support each other so that we're able to call on the expertise that everyone has and everyone's not learning it as they go along. Yeah. It sounds complicated yet probably fun, multivariate. and uh... Yeah, it is. It's a fun, well, first we have a great group. So yeah. like, I love working with our colleagues. And then it is always something different, right? There are themes and there are issues certainly that we've repeated over the years, but there's always something new. As we know, working in healthcare, right? Sometimes you just can't make this stuff up. Right. And, <laughs> and I, I will say for my other colleagues, it's fun to get those really interesting, bizarre questions. And then sometimes there's a black and white legal answer. And more often than not, it's not. It's a gray area. And we're working through the kind of risk assessment of what's the likely outcome? What's the how good or bad is it for the system? And then, you know, honestly, people like you get to make those decisions of where we want that risk to fall. But, you know, we're glad to support all of our colleagues throughout the system. Yeah. I'll say in advance, thanks for what you guys do. And I know how helpful it's been to me and my previous colleagues and area in the past. But thanks for joining us today because we're going to talk about one of the times we first met uh, after I joined BILH was in the context of some of the shortages around chemotherapy. But while that was certainly acute at the time, during COVID, there was also the same issue of almost infinite demand relative to the supply of whatever it is, like fill in the blank sort of thing. And it sort of struck me that Gosh, we have more and more examples of that. Maybe they always existed, I guess, to some degree. We're always you know, trying to figure that. But it feels like 
as the value of what we provide in healthcare has gone up, meaning more diagnostics, more therapeutics, then the demand has gone up, perhaps out of proportion sometimes to the supply. And now even more so, we have supply chain issues, all sorts of things that have affected that. I'm going to imagine you've been pretty busy on the ethics side of assisting us and the teams on how to think about those problems. And can you talk a little bit about sort of the last few years and how that's been for you? Yeah, certainly. So starting, as you said, starting with COVID really was the flashpoint, right? When Mm -hmm. everyone really started to pay attention to this scarcity of resources because we had to, right? And we were doing Mm -hmm. it in smaller pieces, but then we had to do this on this grander scale. So at BILH, we created an ad hoc ethics group that I was leading, but we had representatives from all of the hospitals in the system and really tried to take a systematic approach to how we look at these questions with an ethics lens in particular Mm -hmm. so that we can be planning and we can be deliberate and thoughtful about the decisions that we're making. Right. Because I think a lot of the decisions we make, and I say we meaning mostly the clinicians that are making every day, are grounded in their own moral values. Right. But they're not explicit about them, right? And they Mm -hmm. may think about them in their off time, and maybe they're thinking about them when they're making the decisions, but we're not as deliberate about them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that leads to, not the wrong decision, but a decision that's not as ethically justified maybe as some others. And so in looking at scarce resource allocation, we want to be deliberate and thoughtful and plan ahead so that when those decisions are being made, they're relying on evidence, right? And they're Mm -hmm. relying on thoughtful planning rather than ad hoc decisions. And so creating plans and creating structures and checklists and those sorts of things so that when these instances come up, we're making the best decisions possible. Mm -hmm. So we want to think about all of the different factors that should be contributing to the decision, making sure that we're taking stock of different stakeholder perspectives and what the potential outcomes are as really scientifically justified, right? right? People are studying this, so we should base it on the real evidence right? and not our kind of gut reaction and not a paternalistic approach of like, we think this is best and so we're going to do it as right. opposed to like, we know what is going to lead to the best outcomes and what's going to get us there and how can we implement those decisions. You mentioned in the beginning when sometimes when these conversations happen, people come into it with their sort of moral rules and ground rules and and based on all sorts of things in their background, Mm. whether it's religion or upbringing or just life experience. For those that aren't used to, I know we talk about this in part of our medical school education, but probably lots of listeners haven't had the benefit of having that conversation before. If you think about morality versus ethics and how those are the same or different, can you help explain that for people in your opinion? (laughs) I'm not sure I can, honestly, like really draw that line between ethics and morality. I think when I think about the decisions that we're making, there's the principles on which we're trying to ground those decisions. So Mm -hmm. in bioethics, oftentimes people boil it down to what we call principalism. There's four basic principles. The history is maybe interesting to some people, but probably (laughs) not everyone. But the four basic principles are non-maleficence, beneficence, justice and autonomy, right? It really grew out of the Belmont Report, which grew out of the Nuremberg trials, which grew out of the Holocaust, right? But the Belmont Report really had, they didn't really have autonomy, they had respect for persons. So we've kind of taken this respect for persons idea and tried to boil it down into autonomy. So you really are thinking about non-maleficence, so not doing harm to patients or other individuals. Beneficence is doing the most good you can. Justice is this concept of 
making sure that people have what they need in a fair and equitable way. Mm-hmm. And then autonomy, right, is self-rule, so the right to make decisions over your own body. But that's not all of the principles, right? We think about yeah. transparency. I mean, we said justice, but there's really procedural justice and distributive justice. There's a feminist bioethics lens and kind of communitarianism and how we all interact with each other. So we really want to think about all of those different components when we start making decisions, both for the individual, right, and Mm -hmm. for, and I'll say the individual, but the individual within the context of their lives. So when we think about autonomy, we don't think about autonomy as an individual in a vacuum, because an individual doesn't live in a vacuum, an individual lives with in relation to their family and their neighbors and their friends and all those things. So we wanna think about that for the individual, but then we also want to think about it as we're making decisions as a, a hospital and as a health system of how are we maximizing all of those things at once. We do this exercise with my students when we, one of the early ones in class about values, right? So we have right. a list of 18 values and at, we have them go through this exercise of kind of crossing out five at a time so you get down to your top three. And if you look at that list of 18 values, you look at them and maybe there's one or two or three that you're like, I don't really think those are important. But the rest of them you think are important. Sure. But what's super interesting is that every time the students do it, they all come down with a different top three. And so it gives you this realization that we can all appreciate what are important things and how we should behave in relation to other people. We're going to prioritize them in different, different ways. ways. And that doesn't sure. make the right or wrong, right? And it doesn't make right. a good person or a bad person. But you can look at that and say, ah, I see why you get there. I don't get there in the same way because to your point, right, I have a different religious background. I have different life experiences and I'm getting to a different place than that. But you can appreciate other people's perspectives and then the hard part is trying to balance all of those different perspectives to get to the best global answer. Yeah, and who defines that? As you think about that question, to degree that is healthcare different? Like, the ethical principles and the way we make decisions and the impact of those decisions, is that viewed differently in the eyes of a health system and what its responsibility is to the community versus a commercial retailer, for example, who probably has their own ethics, you would think, maybe well, some of their own ethical decisions. To interesting. Make. I thought you were going to go with, like, government, right? Like a governmental agency versus, like, a health system. Yeah, but I was the, trying to think something a little more opposite. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, the commercial entity, and this is where it's probably less different than we think, right, is driven by capitalism. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in my opinion, so is healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. Like, healthcare has been commodified. And so that Absolutely. changes the way we look at things than we did 70 years ago, right? I used to say 50 years ago. I forget how old I am. But uh, (laughs) 70, 80 years ago, right? It was different, and it was just a different model. And so I think the decisions of, like, how do we – I don't think there's an expectation, for example, that, like, Target is going to do the best for most people. They're going to do the best for their shareholders, right? Like, that's their intention. I don't think we have that in healthcare, whether we're nonprofit or even the for-profits, I don't think are driven in that same way, but in part because – their customers, right, their patients are more responsive in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so I think we are judged on a different, right. through a different lens because we have, I think, legitimately a perception of a responsibility to people that I don't think like the right. general capitalist society has. And I agree with you for sure. And I would imagine if you ask random people in the street, they would agree with you that our 
now I want to say moral obligation, which I'm not sure is the right phrase, but we certainly have a societal obligation, right? That feels different. Yeah. However, there comes a sort of a reckoning or a reconciliation, I guess, ultimately with the business parts of what we do. And I would actually argue, which is perhaps a different podcast we can talk about, you know, people say it used to be different and perhaps that the, you know, we used to think about care differently and now it's become more of a business. And I would argue it's it's always been a business from the time when we had snake oil and no other therapeutics, right? Mm-hmm. It's always been about the business. It's just the business model has fundamentally changed. And yeah. I would say the sort of cost plus financing of decades ago kind of broke the national economy in terms of healthcare. And now we're trying to undo it. And now people are coming to grips with the fact that, gosh, the business model has really changed. Maybe splitting hairs a bit, but I do think it's potentially it's always been driven by money, unfortunately. To, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's unfortunate. But not to get too far down that tangent, is that reconciliation of that social responsibility, community responsibility, I think in particular for nonprofits, because it's also defined in legal terms, and sustainability is a huge problem. And I worry and I wonder what you think about, you know, we had the pandemic and we had all of the, the acute shortages and delivery. But then after the pandemic, there's a, perhaps a more, uh, I even want to use the word sinister or certainly more subtle way where we start to see the, a shortage of the supply. We see it in primary care. We see it in specialty access. We see it recently in supply chain and chemotherapies. How has your thinking started to evolve. And we look ahead and we see hospitals closing, we see mm. decrease in access. So the issues of shortages feel like they're growing relative to demand. And has your thinking started to change around how you start to advise or do you have more concern, I guess, even just personally about how these issues will come up? Yeah, I definitely have more concern. I mean, I think, again, not getting too far down that tangent, right? the commodification of other pieces of healthcare, right? So pharmaceuticals and medical devices and, you know, big pieces of machinery like MRIs yeah. and all those things, those are driven by profit, right? Absolutely. And so then it forces yeah. us to, like, as healthcare institutions, to have to pay more for those yeah. things. Yeah. And so that is driving a lot of this, I think. But I think from my perspective coming out of covid what we tried to do after we kind of dealt with the immediate acute issue was to create some tools to help us make these decisions because we were going to have to make more of them, right? Yeah. And so there's right. there are small acute things like a chemotherapy drug that, you know, hopefully is short-lived. Hopefully we can mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. weather the storm and get through it without significant impact on our patients. And I know, you know, as you said, I worked with our team and I think they did a fantastic job of like really thinking about where can we make some minor changes, right? So we talk about this, the phases of like standard contingency crisis, right? We're Mm -hmm. in the contingency phase. So we're making changes to the standard, but without expecting immediate short-term impact on the patients, right? So we could kind of have an alternative that gets us pretty, pretty close to the same result, if not exactly the same result. So that starts to make me think of, well, should we be doing this all the time? Right. So it was interesting of like in the chemotherapy example, the area under the curve that they treat at certain levels. Right. right. And within our system, there were slight variations of what right. they treated. Right. But if we look at the science, like, should we be using a little bit less chemotherapy drug because the additional amount doesn't 
provide an additional benefit, right? right? So that's just a way that you can look at the resources we're using and seeing, are we using them most effectively and efficiently? Mm-hmm. And I think we can do it in a lot of different places. And so that just takes time, it takes mm-hmm. effort, it takes a lot of people and a lot of very smart people thinking together. Yeah. And part of the challenge is, in, it's always been this way, but in particular now, right? Staffing is so lean right. in every area of our system, right? Even at the C-suite level. Mm-hmm. And so getting the people who can be doing all the things that have to happen during the day and planning for not just next week or next month or next year, but five years down the road of like, how are we thinking about all these things is mm-hmm. a real challenge, I think, for yeah. healthcare institutions and for society generally. But I think that's what we have to do if we're really going to be ready when the acute issues come up. So having a framework when the next drug shortage comes up of what are the right questions we're asking? Who are the stakeholders, for example, right? right? Are we looking at the patients who might be impacted? Are we looking at all the different practitioners who are going to be impacted? Mm -hmm. Who makes the decisions, right? Who sets the rules? Because we don't want it to be the frontline staff usually right? because their interest is in their individual patient that's in front of them. And that's where their focus should be. It should be. And it shouldn't be conflicted with another patient who may or may not get benefit and another physician is going to be focused on that patient. So who's going to make the decision of how we balance those things? There's also like the equity and justice lens of like, what are the populations that have been disproportionately impacted by lots of things, right? Structural inequities and all sorts of things. But if you look at in the chemotherapy example, are there certain types of cancers that are more likely to affect black patients? And if there are, should we be taking that into account when we're doing these changes to dosages, right? We want to make sure that the people who have been most disadvantaged throughout history are not further disadvantaged when we make these decisions. And in fact, maybe we want to say they're less disadvantaged, right? Like that maybe they should be ahead of the line. Right. But these are all things we have to think about in advance and work through because to your earlier point, like not everyone thinks the same way. And so we want to, I think we have an opportunity as a system to ensure that similar people are treated similarly, not just in one department and not just within one hospital, but throughout our system, right? And ideally, we would do that on an even bigger scale. And we started to do that really during COVID. I mean, the way that this city really responded, and really it was honestly our institutions and MGB and all the other, you know, and Tufts and the other institutions yeah. got together and were like, okay, who's got vents and where are we going to go and right. how are we going to shift patients? Like, right. we did that as a community and that was amazing. And that's really what we should be doing everywhere, I think. But that gets to socialized medicine. And yeah. we're not there yet. We're not, that's, that's definitely <laughs> that's a, different a different podcast. podcast. That's yeah, definitely yeah. A different we podcast. need more time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think as we, you know, as we see more of these things coming, and it comes to staffing too, right? Like, we think, okay, well, let's take this med surge nurse and put them in the ICU because we need more ICU nurses. Is that the same level of care? Mm-hmm. Is it good enough? Like, is it still within contingency? Are we going to yeah. expect the same sort of outcomes? Can we do the in real time training, right? Or the just in time mm-hmm. training, I should yeah. say, so that we can get people where they need to be? Yeah. Are there different substitutes and alternatives, right? Are we, and I know we do this, like, are we looking at how we use our space efficiently mm-hmm. in the hospitals and where can we build that is going to be? useful now but then in the future because we don't obviously we don't want to build a space that's helpful for a year and then now (laughs) we've got to repurpose it right Right. that all costs money and time and energy i think if we can get into the habit of sitting down and coming up with what everyone agrees on as a checklist we have one from our ethics work of things that we're considering and then how can we get i think one of the biggest challenges honestly is 
getting stakeholder input mm -hmm. because you have to be out in front of it. You can't do it when that issue comes, right? Yeah, you have right. to kind of know That's in right. advance. So you have to see it far enough in the future. Right. You get the J&J &J warehouse that gets hit by a tornado. You can't see that coming, right? right. Like some of the other drugs you can kind of see coming. Even the chemotherapy stuff, it was like FDA right. shut down a manufacturer in Overseas, India or yeah, China exactly, or somewhere. Right. And then you don't see that, right? right? Like there's no COVID you can kind of see coming a little bit. Right. Some of these other shortages we might be able to see on the horizon. But that means that before then, we're getting stakeholder input. And then the other hard question is, who are the stakeholders, yeah. right? Like, and how do you that get that That feels pretty infinite at this point in terms of... It I mean, does. It's everybody. Yeah. yeah, and you don't, you know, you want to get perspectives of communities, but who's the community, mm -hmm. right? So you can't get one person from one ethnicity and be like, oh, well, they represent everyone from that right. ethnicity, right? That's, <laughs> right. you can't do that. Right. That's, and so okay. the stakeholder input is, as you say, infinite, right? But the broader it is, the more diverse it is, the more perspectives you're going to get, the more balanced get of closer. a kind of... Yeah, I think you can get. I think you can get pretty close. To to what degree do some of these decisions come down to placing some sort of value on life and quantifying that? And related to that, to what degree do some of these decisions relate to the individual versus the whole from a societal standpoint? And my feeling is the US tends to value individualism more so than perhaps some of our European counterparts. Um, and so I wonder if you make different ethical decisions based on those principles in the U.S. versus places in Europe that perhaps have a more societal point of view. And I think, of, for example, lots of questions in there into one, but, you know, the NHS, for example, uses equality, the quality yeah. adjusted life here, to value certain interventions and then to try to codify it down into some sort of scientific method. You know, I think there's probably varying points of view as to how that works, but I don't feel like that would be acceptable here in there's a lot in there. Yeah. But I, so I think on an individual level, it should be, right, we should get the values, goals, and preferences of the individual and really know what they would want and then act accordingly, right, and offer those interventions mm -hmm. that are going to further that. And if they say every breath is sacred, that's their values, and we should offer interventions that can do that, even though we know that that societally is not a great use of resources, mm -hmm. right? Like that's just kind of the perspective we've taken. As you say, that is unheard of in other situations. Yeah. It's also unheard of, though, for some individuals to make their decisions and not their families to make decisions for them. And we right. sometimes look at that and we're like, whoa, that's very different, and we're not used yeah. to that, and we don't know how to do that. But that's more of, like, the community approach. It's not the community of, like, what's best for everyone, yeah. necessarily. Yeah. And I think you need to have more, how do we allocate the resources is really what it's getting down to. And I think that's another challenge that we face is, the healthcare industry, really, it shouldn't be just on us, right? But like communicating about resource scarcity and how decisions are made in those instances so mm -hmm. that it shouldn't really come down to one versus the other, right? But it should be like, how do we efficiently use mm -hmm. these resources so that people with hematocrit above X or below X aren't going to get this sort of thing? I mean, that is a resource allocation decision, Absolutely. right? We don't sure. always think of it that way and we don't structure right. the decisions that way, right. but that's really what it is. I mean, honestly... Everything is a scarce resource. So the time that a nurse spends with one patient, they're not spending with another patient. Absolutely. So unless we have infinite nurses where, like, everyone is getting 24-7 mm -hmm. watch, everything is making a decision. And as I said, uh, doing that on the fly for these kind of small things is fine. When you get to bigger issues of, like, how many MRIs do we need in the community? How many CT scanners do we need in the community? That's part of what the Health Policy Commission is supposed to be doing. Right. But we, as a system, can start to do some of that 
and we do in terms of like what specialties are we expanding, right? Where are mm -hmm. we expanding ORs? Where are we creating ambulatory surgery centers, right? How can we get to more patients in a less expensive way so that more people can get what they need and we have a less of a cost for that sort of stuff? So we're looking at a lot of those things, but I think the public needs to better understand how our health system really works. Because yeah. they think, oh, I have a universal right to health care doesn't really exist in this country. Right. Universal insurance, sort of, kind of, there's a right. promotion of it, but it doesn't really exist. So we don't really have that. The only time we have that is MTALA, which is, you know, right. your guaranteed emergency care right. when you get to an right. emergency room. That's it. Yeah. Right? And so we need yeah. a better floor. For sure. And that's a whole other, I would love to do a <laughs> podcast with a group of folks talking about healthcare as a right or not right. and how that's teach students always talk about. We haven't called it a right, right, but we do guarantee a service because of MTALA. We guarantee the service of healthcare literally to anyone, regardless of literally any classification, including citizenship status, which I know will drive some people in certain parts of the world a little crazy. But literally anyone can walk into an emergency room and they must be cared for at some level. There's no other public good that's protected at that level. And we don't protect education, water, food, housing in that way. This is, But we administer it. And, Clearly, like the dumbest way possible, right? right? Through the emergency room, which is insane. Well, it doesn't, it, it gets them the care, but then they got to pay for they it. They got to pay right? for so it. So they may get a bill for it. So, right. like, yeah, they get it, but then it's like, have they just bankrupted themselves right, trying exactly. to do that, yeah, right? And we all have financial assistance policies, and obviously that's not the goal, but yeah, like that's it, right? That's the only way that you're guaranteed to get it. And there are some other safety nets of like sure, Medicaid of course, and, yeah. and those sorts of things where you can get some, but you still can't get all the things you need. Right. And as a society, we haven't continue to support the community effort of caring for each other. Right. And so we're having more and more patients who have nowhere to go or we're putting in facilities they don't want to be in that cost a lot of money that have the potential of bankrupting their families because we haven't, as a society, decided to take care of people as they age or as mm -hmm. they become disabled. And that's a societal decision. So people don't like it when we say, oh, your loved one has to go to a nursing facility. And they're like, why can't they come home? And we explain why it's not safe. And they don't like that answer because the only safe option for them, when they want their loved one to be safe, their only safe option for them means basically they lose all of their assets, right? They lose right. their family home. They lose all those things. That's not how we should be operating as a society. Yeah. But to crawl out of that is a is a monumental. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. That's a multiple podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe as we're closing up on time, I'm wondering if you could reflect a bit on what you think, and you've alluded to some of this, but just to kind of put it in one spot, if you can reflect a bit on what you think the average person out there in the community, non-healthcare person, thinks our ethical obligations are to them or to the community, you know, relative to the reality, you know, what do you think the average person expects of us? I think, unfortunately, the average person expects the best healthcare possible at the smallest cost to them and with no waiting time, right? I mean, that's the hardest part of what we're dealing with is everyone wants that. And I think what people really have to understand is there's a trade-off, right? That we call like that the iron triangle. You can't have all three things growing at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you may get, we're trying to give you the best healthcare possible, but that costs money, right? Or mm -hmm. that may be a wait because for it to cost less money, there's gotta be a longer wait or those sorts of things. Um, I hope that people can understand that we, I keep saying we, like I'm a clinician, I'm not a clinician, right? But all of our clinicians are focused on providing the best care possible to the patients that are in front of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm hopeful that we as a system can one or two levels up, help 
make decisions so that they don't have to make the balancing scarce resource yeah. decisions. I think the community needs to understand that there are trade-offs and there are balances. I think one of the biggest challenges we face in healthcare right now is a loss of trust. Yeah. And that was certainly some of it was pre-COVID. Some of the stories, you know, the Henrietta Lacks story, for example. Yeah. Like there's all sorts of like yeah. historical injustices that lead to distrust. But there's also like, it's not just historical. It's right now. It's right now. It's people who don't feel like they're being treated appropriately. And some of them are objectively fair characterizations and some of them aren't. But then they don't trust that we're trying to get them the best care possible, that we're doing what we think is in their best interest, that we're trying to give them the things that are consistent with their values, goals, and preferences. And then that distrust breaks down the relationship we have and it makes everything harder. So I think healthcare writ large has mm-hmm. to prove their trustworthiness and rebuild that trust so that when we're making these other decisions like masking policies and those sorts of things, they can appreciate why we're making those decisions when we explain them, right? They can understand that this is legitimately why we're doing this and not there's some ulterior motive, like, or this is all about money or whatever this is. Because I do, you know, the reason I've stayed here as long as I've stayed here is because I believe in this place and I believe in our mission and I believe in the leadership that is taking us on that mission. And we can keep going in that direction, but we it just is getting harder and harder because we've lost the trust of our most yeah. important people, of our patients, and sometimes our staff. And so we need to rebuild that so that we can get to the ability to provide the treatment, the care that we are poised to do. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Probably a good place to stop, but thank you, David, for what you're doing and helping us make the best decisions possible in a really hard environment. So thanks for what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please leave comments on any of your social media platforms that you like to use. And then please rate us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. So thanks very much.